All right. Well, I'm going to let my uh, my computer decided they wanted to restart. Great, great timing, of course. So uh, let me uh, pray for us, and uh, we'll go ahead and get started. Hopefully, uh, we can close out uh, this series today, uh, looking at some of the texts uh, purporting to teach something other than kind of what we've already discussed with regards to particular uh, effective redemption or effective particular redemption, whatever. So. Uh, let's ask for the Lord's help, and then we will get into it. Lord Jesus, we are thankful to be assembled. We're thankful to be able to study your word. And we are thankful for redemption that is effective and a sacrifice that does indeed purify, save, and from which, or by which, excuse me, the wrath of God has been removed from us. And so we pray that we would continue to consider these things humbly and thoughtfully, and it would not just be an intellectual exercise. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right. Give me one second. So you will well. Why this is this is still big? So you will recall last time that we went over what I called the master argument, and I just want to clarify that it's not the master argument because John Owen was a master, and certainly not because I am a master, but because it lays out all of the steps, and you can kind of clarify someone's theology of atonement, and even in some cases eternal hell, based off which step in particular that they reject, and. Uh, I am not going to rehash that argument as a ministry of mercy, okay? Because I realize it's a pretty serious, pretty serious piece of argumentation, and that's not to say that you are not serious folks. Uh, but at the same time, I don't want to just move move on from it. So let me just su summarize it briefly, and to and to say it this way: If the atonement in eternity past. In the plan of God in eternity past, which is the only proper context for a discussion of definite atonement, um, actually, effectively satisfied the wrath of God, then it's not possible that, that, that he satisfied God's wrath for everybody because people will face God's wrath in hell. That's what the New Testament teaches. Therefore, the atonement is limited. All right, so there is a super, super condensed version of that master argument that we went over. Um, any, I mean, of course, we would have some good questions last time and some time constraints. Does anyone have a, a, a question about that master argument before I move on here? Let me just add one issue. Let me just uh, add one more insight here that takes into account this distinction between the uh, the role of the atonement in, the, in God's plan from eternity past and the role of the how the application of the atonement in the run of history. You might ask the following question: Did Jesus die to remove the wrath of God from people who, at the at the time of his death and before? Uh, we're, in, we're, we're suffering in, for Hades, which is the intermediate state, hell being Gehenna, the lake, kind of the lake of fire, total end state, but um, who are suffering. Remember the rich man in Lazarus? Rich man is suffering in the flames of Hades. Okay. Did Jesus die to remove the wrath of God for the people experiencing it like that? That would be an odd thing. Well, wouldn't it? If, it, if Christ's effect, if Christ's atonement was in fact effective, and similarly, 
Um, if Christ's atonement uh, was effective, it explains why people, kind of on the other side, who are Old Testament saints, uh, could in fact be saved and be in Abraham's bosom in the absence of, in the run of history yet, there being a perfect sacrifice that could take away sins. Okay? So both of those, but looking at it from both sides, I think helps us get a little bit better perspective on why it's important and what we mean by saying the context of the atonement is God's plan before the ages began and not the, how it is applied in the run of history where it comes on the timeline. And then finally, um, just if you forgot, we, we, we talked about the argument from uh, mediation. Christ is the mediator uh, for everyone for whom he shed blood, but he doesn't mediate for everyone. Therefore, he didn't shed blood for everybody. That one comes out of Hebrews, okay? The idea is if Christ is the high priest of the new covenant, and you could look at a couple passages, but I think we looked at Hebrews 10, but really that whole section, nine, not 9 and 10, would be fine. Uh, and, and to say, well, he's the high priest of the new covenant, and the reason we have confidence to enter into the holy place by his blood is because he intercedes for those who blood was shed for. Okay? He intercedes on the merit of his blood. But he doesn't intercede for everyone, and therefore the blood wasn't shed for everyone. Okay, That's the idea. And then finally, there's just that one-line zinger. And the logic of the passage is conclusive. It's very difficult to wiggle out of Romans 8.32. That if he did not spare his only son, but graciously gave him up for us all, how will he not with him also oh, give us up for us all? How will he not also with how will, oh, I hate the way the ESV says this one. How will he not also with us give us all, give with him, give us all things? Wow, that was bad. How does it, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. That was so bad. I promise it says it's very close to that. Let me just read it. So this, all right. Yeah, so he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Romans 8.32. So the idea is the us in the passage is the same us in both parts in the passage. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. All right, so Christ has given us up for us all. If he gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things. Everyone for whom Christ was given up receives all things. That's Paul's whole, whole point. If he gave him up for us, and then he makes this kind of, if this is the case, how much more the case this? If Christ was given up for us, how much more obviously, are we going to receive the benefits of it? Okay? Everyone for whom Christ was given up receives all things in context as things related to salvation. Not everyone receives all things. Therefore, Christ wasn't given up for everybody. Okay? If you had to just, if you wanted, not that you should build a doctrine on one text, but if you did, if you just, if you forgot everything about the master argument and everything else, it's all summarized, I, I would say, in Romans 8.32. Okay? Any question about that? Any questions about that? Does that seem fairly straightforward? Yes? Again, if you forgot everything, just remember, just remember Romans eight thirty two as a summary statement. Yes.
Are you asking me if that would be a particularly persuasive way to engage somebody or? Oh, yeah. Well, again, yeah, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I think the reality of hell demonstrates because I so because I understand hell to be retributive justice. Okay, because I understand the cross to be Christ to be penal substitution, taking the wrath of God for sinners. And because I believe God to be just, I do believe that the reality of people's at least some people spending eternity in hell means that the atonement is definite. If it's not, it either means that everyone is saved. Or it means that the atonement, and this is the Amaraldian, Amaraldian, uh, Amaraldian view, is, is that, uh, that that atonement isn't effective. It doesn't actually save. It doesn't actually remove the wrath of God. doesn't actually purify. It just kind of potentially does those things. The atonement made a vaccine in the plan of God. It didn't actually accomplish its end, which would be radically disanalogous from what we see of, of sacrifice for sin in the Old Testament. There's no, not a single example in the Old Testament where an atoning sacrifice for sin fails to accomplish its effect. Okay, so that's so yes, in a, in a very very brief word, yeah, I think the reality of hell. In fact, there was a PCA, <laughs> there was a PCA pastor when I was in college who just said, "Do you believe in hell? All right, the atonement's limited." I mean, that's basically what. Of course, he wasn't trying to be persuasive of someone who didn't already believe, but he was talking with me about it. So. In a word, yes. I, don't, I wouldn't, th you know, you would need, but the, the reason that wouldn't be particularly persuasive is because you would need to tease out the relationship between hell, what atonement is, what justice is, wrath, that the nature of hell is wrath, so on and so forth. That's why that master argument kind of teases out all those steps so you can see exactly where someone uh, objects. Does that make sense? Okay. But, but you're following correctly, yes. Okay, any other questions about that master argument to Romans 8.32 or any of it? Okay, so we are going to close our time together looking at passages that purport to, 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 to teach something quite different. The texts that are usually marshal forward to support um, unlimited or indefinite or potential atonement. And so I hope you have your Bible with you, uh, either on your phone or, or, or uh, much better in front of you. Uh, turn with me first to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Of course, you'll recognize that I already preached on this, but let's go back and explore it in a little bit more depth. I would say that uh, this is the one that is most frequently turned to, and so it deserves uh, our attention. Let me first say this, that the Greek word pos, all, let me say two things about it. Number one, all is always qualified by its context. If I say all the milk's gone, I don't mean all the milk in the world's gone. I mean, all the milk in my refrigerator is gone. Okay, utterances are contextually utterances are contextually situated. Meaning is not just lexical. Meaning in a dictionary, what it possibly could mean that's just semantic range. Here's what a word could mean. What a word actually means and how I'm using it to refer to something is defined by context. Number one. But number two, frequently in the New Testament, all 
uh, in addition, like we Romans 8.32 is a great example. Um, but also you have the word all meaning all kinds of things instead of all in terms of uh, as opposed to every single thing or every single person or whatever the case may be without exception. So for example, money is the root of all evil. Okay, the idea is that money is the root of all kinds of evil, not the, the you know, the reason that you struggle with with lust or some of the reason someone committed adultery is because of money. It's the idea that money gives rise to all different kinds of, of evils. And so you have some of you have no doubt heard the phrase all without distinction, but not all without exception. And that's what that phrase is getting at. To say that Christ, when we read all, that Christ died for all people without distinction, slave, free, male, female, Jew, Gentile. Um, we're going to see in 1 Timothy 2, rich, poor. Well, no, actually it's 1 Timothy 2, we're going to see uh, governing and then people who are subject to governors, rich, poor, all, all kinds and classes of people. That's what it's saying, all without distinction. It's leaning on that understanding of all of all kinds, not all people without exception, okay? And so I think that that's a good distinction to make, but let me just say that sometimes it's a cop-out. Sometimes people use it as a cop-out, and they don't do good exegesis. It's almost like there's no proof text that could ever possibly contradict what they're saying because that when they, when they see all they say oh yeah all without this thing no no except move on and so what i want to try to do is be a little bit more careful than to just go through and say oh yeah every time we see this it just this is going to be our spin on it or this is going to be our version of it okay so let's look at first john chapter two and we're going to look at particularly at verse two which says this he is the propitiation and we've talked about that before um, I'm going to just say it right now because I don't have time to go marshal forward all the reasons for thinking it, but the idea is propitiation in John combines the satisfaction of wrath with purification, the package deal. So Christ is the propitiation, and, and it's phrased awkwardly, and that, that's for a reason we're going to talk about in just a second here. He is the propitiation. It doesn't say he made propitiation, which he did. That's not how it's phrased. He is the propitiation for our sins. Okay, so far so good. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Okay, well you can see why this text is brought forward um, to combat claims of definite atonement. And you can probably understand why Reformed folks are quick to deploy the all-without Distinction, but not all without exception, is kind of like a, all right, ducked that one. But let's see if we can listen a little more carefully than reciting slogans. See, what we, see if we can understand what John's doing here. So, notice that the verse, as I just mentioned, does not say Christ made propitiation, which obviously he did. But strangely, it says he is the propitiation. He is the propitiation. Now, when I preached on this a couple of weeks ago, I pointed out that this was odd. What, what exactly is going on here? Why is this significant? What I'm suggesting is that this is a point, just like in 1 Timothy 4.10, where Paul describes Christ as the Savior of all men, or all people, especially those who believe. 
I'm, I, what I'm suggesting is it is a point about the exclusivity of Christ's work that there isn't another mediator. There isn't another Savior. In the same way that Christ is the Savior of all people, all men, especially those who believe, it's not saying that, that Christ is every single person's Lord and Savior. Certainly not the people who reject him. And that's not what Paul's communicating at all. What he's saying is there's one Savior. He is the Savior. I'm going to give an illustration in a second here. But that's the idea. He is the propitiation. So I want to suggest that we get something like Acts 4, 11, and 12 here. This Jesus, Peter says to the crowd, is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. For to this end, Paul says, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. And again, this is... this. It, that verse itself is sometimes put forward for the advocate uh, from the advocates of an unlimited or potential atonement. But the problem is, it says that he is the Savior. Paul does not think that everyone that, that Jesus Christ is every single individual person's Lord and Savior. There are people who reject Jesus. So that's very, very clear. He's making a point about the exclusivity of what Christ has done. Let me give you an example. Joe Biden is the president of America. What that means is he is a president of America, and he's the only one. So he's not my president. Actually, if you're an American citizen, he is. He is, actually. Why well, didn't vote for him? Doesn't matter. He is the president of the United States of America. And you might say... To keep, our, to keep the parallel with 1 Timothy 4.10, especially of those who uh, you know, lean left or vote Democrat or whatever. They take ownership of him as, oh, this is our president. And maybe they do, I don't know. Uh, but, uh, but, but he is the only one, regardless of whether you voted for him or not. He is the president. Okay? So the first point, the first step here is a point about exclusivism. Jesus is the propitiation that has been offered for this world. If you are a member of this world, Jesus is the only Savior. He is the only propitiation that, has, that is on offer, that there is. Period. Period. He is the propitiation that has... Now, hey, guess what? If there's another world way over here that we don't know about in some other universe... Maybe there's another propitiation over there. Of course, I honestly don't. I don't obviously don't think that. But I'm trying to help you feel the point here that that it, for for the world that God has created, Jesus is the propitiation. Okay, and so He is the only one, particularly in light of this context, who has shed meaning, meaningful, purifying blood in a way that can remove the wrath of God. That's it. That's it. And so. He clarifies that point about the exclusivity of Christ's propitiation for our sins. And so far, everyone's so good. We have a point about the exclusivity of Christ's atonement. He's the only name under heaven given among men by which we saved. He's the sa he is the Savior of all people. He's the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, 
but for the sins of the whole world. Now, you not have to remember that the world in John is used quite a few ways, but given the nature of this contrast here, it obviously has to refer to the realm of those and realm inhabited by those who are walking in darkness. There's just no getting around that if you're looking at it responsibly. Not for ours only, but for, and then there's a con for the sins of the whole world. But here's the thing if you put those who are walking in the light, which John just talked about in the near context, and those walking in darkness, which is characteristic of the world, together, what do you have? You have the whole world categorically. Okay? That is the whole world. It's not like there's people walking in light, people walking in dark, and then people like in a dimly lit room somewhere, you know? That's not it. That is the whole world. That's the whole world. And what John is saying, what I understand John to be saying, if we're listening carefully, is that Jesus has made propitiation not only for those walking in the light, but also for those walking in darkness. That's what makes it possible for people who are walking in darkness to come into the light. That's what, think about it. If Christ did not die for people who are walking in darkness, how can anyone become a Christian? Weren't some of you the objects of God's wrath, just like the nature of them, before you were repented and believed the gospel? Were you walking in darkness? Did you belong to it? Yes, you did. The only way it's possible for you to shift rooms, right, is because Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins, but also for people all across the world who are walking in darkness. Okay? And this is the backbone of John 3.16. God loved the world in this manner, that He sent His only Son, so that all believing, whosoever believes in Him, shall not perish, but will have eternal life. Okay? And so, now, maybe some of you are wondering, well, how is that, maybe I'm, because I'm, I'm saving this for last, I'm wanting at least a couple people to think, wait a second, how does that not still undercut the point? You know, how is that still compatible with particular redemption? What the proponent of unlimited atonement has to read into this text is something like this. That Christ made propitiation not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world who are in for the sins of the whole world who are in darkness and who will always be in darkness and who will die in the darkness. Is that the point that John's making or is he making a point about the propitiation of Jesus? You see, I agree that Jesus died for people, made propitiation for people who are in the world and who are in darkness. I think that's what this text teaches very plainly. There's no wiggling out of it in my, in my judgment. Okay? But what the text is, does not say is that Jesus made propitiation for those who are of the world. Again, a technical term in John, a technical term in John, which here is being contrasted with believers. Okay, um, the, the, I believe that he has made propitiation for those who are of the world, understood as those who are walking in darkness. That's why the Great Commission is possible, but it just does not say here that he made propitiation for the, the those uh, for the world who will always remain a part of the world. Okay, the fact that he is the propitiation for 
people who all throughout the world are walking in darkness and are therefore categorically the world is what makes evangelism even possible. And the scope of the point of the passage is not primarily a point about the scope of how, you know, how, um, how many people get in or something like that. It's a, it's a passage about the exclusive work of Christ being the propitiation for everyone understood in John's dualistic categories as us, and not us only, but also for the whole world understood as those who are walking in darkness. Christ is the propitiation for Christians, and he is the propitiation to put for non-Christians. And that leaves open... You, you, can't, you have to read your theology into the next part. The advocate of an unlimited atonement is going to say those who are unchristians and who, all, who always will be. What I'm suggesting is the text doesn't, it's not even talking, it, it doesn't say one way or another. And what I would suggest is that, uh, that, it, that Christ is atoned for those who are unchristians and who will become Christians. Remember, John has category. John has a category for sheep who have not yet believed. Remember when we went over this? You do not believe, he tells them, because you are not my sheep. There are sheep walking in darkness who will believe. Christ has died for them. He has died for those walking in darkness. Because they are his, they will come out of darkness. The fact that he is the only propitiation enables that. Any, someone, is, is that clear? Does the, the distinction I'm making make sense? Yes. Yes, and that's one not exactly in that third category. So for the microphone, there are people who are saved, people who are not saved, and then people who are not saved who never will be saved. And that third category just isn't here. Okay? It's talking about people who walk in darkness. It's talking about people who are of the world. He's he's not talking about people in this context who are of the world, and then prophetically he's saying, and will always be. He's making a statement about the exclusive nature of Christ's propitiation for everyone, for those who, are, who have believed and people who have not yet believed, is the way I would say it. Christ made propitiation for those who believed and for the world, understood as a contrast as those who have, I would say, not yet believed. But the text is just underdetermined there. It just doesn't say. It just doesn't say. Okay, it's not a point in, in my judgment. It's not a, it's not a point in favor of definite atonement, but it's not a point in favor of unlimited potential atonement either. Okay. Any other questions about that? Very good question. Okay. So, to just uh, so First John, to do I have this up here? Yes, I do. 1 John 2.2 can be summarized by these three points. Jesus made propitiation by his blood. He is the only such propitiation that has been made. He has made propitiation for those who have been born of God and walking in the light, as well as for those who are children of the evil one walking in darkness. That is why there is gospel hope for those walking in darkness, sheep who have not yet believed. Okay? Is, the, is this text compatible 
with an understanding of a atonement that is unlimited. Yeah, it's compatible with it, but it's not an argument for it. That's not an argument for it. What it's argument for is that Jesus died, made propitiation for people who are of the world, in the world, throughout the whole world in darkness. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Yeah, you know, uh, I think the NIV. Can you say that again? Well, so they're both. Yeah, I mean, I don't. At least to my ear, one doesn't sound done, and one sounds applied. They both sound like something that you have to just understand as um, conceptually when you use the word. I mean, so if someone were to ask me propitiation, atonement, I would just ask them what they mean. Yeah, well, so I, and I didn't, you know, unfortunately, so I just kind of glossed over that here when I, I mean, when I preached through 1 John 2, 2, I tried to give some context for that in terms of the uh, the word that's used and how it's translated in the Greek translation of the Old Testament and how that is effective. And then John's categories, uh, there is both a wrath satisfaction component and a, um, and a uh, a purification component, but like for example, the NIV, I'm fairly sure translate translates as a atoning sacrifice. Okay, so like a sacrificial atonement or something like that. So yeah, I don't know um, if you were talking with someone, I would just say Christ is you know, use whatever vocabulary maybe they're more comfortable with using, provided it's accurate. To say for whom did Christ atone? And then you have to say, well, okay, but what is that? For whom did Christ make propitiation? For whom did... Notice how you're phrasing that with the object. For whom did this happen? Because in the Old Testament, there's always an object. The answer from the, our uh, brothers and sisters who are support the indefinite view is no one. Okay? For whom did Jesus remove this? The answer is no one. He only potentially did this. And that causes the problem of, well... That's just not sacrifices. We would understand it up against an Old Testament context. It's a categorically different thing, and the Old Testament should be our background. That's that. That was part. Uh, that's that kind of first part of the master argument from last time. Yeah, really good question there. Yes. Well, I uh, yes, I do. I think I do because I think that um, world for John, particularly in this context, contrasted with people who have um, an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus the righteous. I think it's more plausible to understand that as people who are walking in darkness, who are of the world, um, and you see that 
multiple times there. And again, the world, co the word cosmos is used differently in, um, in different contexts. And we have to let the context speak. But I mean, I take it what you're saying is something like, I'm not speaking just to you Jews. I'm speaking to, you know, and it's kind of, oh, Jews and Gentiles categorically, right? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So I do think, yeah, he is. So there's this cloister of people, but this cloister of people in the context is those people who have Christ Jesus, the righteous, as their advocate. So the, the opposite of that is people who don't, I would think, right? That's how it's defined right here. Those who have Christ Jesus as the advocate. He was the propitiation for those folks, but also for the these folks. So the contrast in the immediate context suggests it's not a... a a Jew Gentile thing or just an us and the nations thing. It's a us who have Christ's righteousness, uh, who have, excuse me, uh, Christ as an advocate and those who do not have Christ as an advocate. Does that make sense? And so I think you can do a lot. I think you can be more careful and say a little bit more uh, and than just, well, here we are, all without, all without distinction, but not all without exception. Any other questions? All right, well, if you have a question about that, like I said, that's probably this is probably the verse that is brought forward the most, I would say, to defend an unlimited or potential atonement. Come ask me later. Okay. All right, let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2, 5 and 6. These will be a little quicker. And I think in 1 Timothy chapter 2, we see a great contextual example of the all without distinction principle. There we go. Paul is urging prayer, and we're going to follow the alls here, and we're going to look at the context as we go down before we deploy the all without distinction, not all without exception slogan. He says, first of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. All right, comma, stop real quick. Look up here. Someone's keep reading. I see you keep reading. For all people. So all people. We just read the first clause. All people. So we're supposed to pray for every single person in the world. Right? You know that's what you're supposed to do, right? You're supposed to pray for every single person in the world. People you never met, people you didn't know exist on the other side of the globe. You think that's a plausible way to start this off? Before we look at the rest of the, even the sentence, you think that's a plausible way to start that off? No, I don't think so either. I don't think so either. But let's continue because, hey, sometimes, sometimes we're called to do extraordinary things. But let's see if our suspicion is confirmed. He urges, uh, he urges them to pray for all people. And then he clarifies that he's talking about certain kinds of people, different kinds of people, for kings and for all who are in high positions. So not those who are subject to rulers, but to kings themselves and then to lower people, lower governing authorities. Why? Why on earth would we pray for those people, particularly when they may, in some cases, try to oppress us? Paul gives a very clear answer so that we may live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good 
and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Okay, pause, pause. So what Paul is saying is we want to pray not just for not just for one another, not just for people who are disenfranchised, not just for people who are poor, not just for people who are... But we want to pray for kings. We want to pray for those people in lower authorities. We want to pray for all kinds of people. All kinds of people without writing them off because they're a part of this... Uh, they're, they're a part of this system or they're, uh, in, they're this level of influence or whatever the case may be. All kinds of people. Why? So that we can live peaceful and quiet lives. This is pleasing to God. And then we get verse 4. Who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So again, all people still, still means the same thing here. We pray for all people. He desires all people. All kinds of people. For there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And so the argument here is this, if you, and I have it zigzagged in my Bible, but if you follow the alls here, it becomes very clear that the last all is like the other alls that are right before it. And it's talking about all kinds of people. Okay, he was a ransom for all kinds of people, for us, for those who are kings, for lower governing authorities, for anyone, frankly, who contributes to leaving us a quiet, uh, leading a quiet life. And so you need to make intercession for them. Christ has died for them, too. Christ has died for these kinds of people. He has been the ransom for for them. That one to me. Seems very straightforward. You follow the alls. Okay? Um, any, any, any questions about that? Fly keeps assaulting me up here. No one's got a question about that? Does that seem straightforward, what I said, as we kind of walk through it there, looking at the alls? You think that's special pleading? Does that make sense? If you, if you don't think you're commanded in the very first sentence to pray for every single person in the world, all people, it's difficult to know how that change, you know, the all, the reference of all changes when you get down in the passage once it's already been confirmed uh, two other times. So I, I just, that one is not particularly persuasive for me. Um, let's turn to 2 Peter 2.1. 2 Peter 2.1. Second Peter 2 1 says this. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. Even denying the master who bought them. So the idea is supposed to be this. Well, Christ bought people. And then they are denying him and leaving the church. And so therefore, Christ spilled blood for people who denied him. And therefore, the atonement isn't definite. Or the atonement isn't limited. Or something like that. That's the idea. Okay? So he, he bought people who aren't Christians. That's, that's supposed to be what, why this is a proof text. Okay? I think John Owen's view of this verse is wrong. 
Uh, he says that the redemption here, I'm sorry, the purchasing here isn't salvific. It's not redemptive purchasing. Don't think, I think that's trying to duck. The question, um, and it, it isn't clear that despotes is, that's the word for master here. It's not a word that's ever used to describe Christ and his redeeming or atoning role. And atonement isn't even, if we're going to back up just saying it, but atonement is not even in the scope of before or after. This isn't a passage about the scope of the atonement in, in, in its larger context. And sometimes there are, Bible, there are verses in the Bible that make kind of one-off comments that, uh, that are out of line with the larger subject matter. But certainly this is this passage, and, and, when we, and if, that's, if this is one of them, then we need to do business with that. Um, but it isn't entirely clear that despotase refers to Christ and his redeeming role, although I happen to think that it does. I happen to think that it does. I think there are reasons to think that it is purchase. It is um, bought with Christ's blood here. I think that makes the most sense. Now, if I'm wrong, then what I'm about to say is not necessary. Okay? So if you say, well, no, I don't buy that. I don't think despotase could refer to Christ. I don't think this is salvific purchasing. Then, then you're already, you know, then what I'm going to say is irrelevant. But if you think, no, this is redemptive language, and uh, it is Christ purchasing them, being bought, uh, because that, that's because of how that word is used more generally, uh, it is possible that it's non-salvific, but because of actual usage in the New Testament, it, it tends to almost always be, it, it tends to be redemptive. You are bought with a price, therefore honor the Lord with your body. It seems to be a redemptive, uh, it tends to be a redemptive word. Okay, so, um, what are, what's going on here in the last uh, three minutes? Um, oh, the last three minutes. Okay, so the recall that in First and Second Peter, despite being written to a primary Gentile, primarily Gentile audience, that Peter over and over understands them to be what I'll call the Israel of God. Turn back with me to First Peter two nine. Oh, page hit the microphone. First Peter two nine, and we read this incredible passage. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Whoa! You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Um, Peter uh, uses language, and we don't have time to go through every single example or lay out the whole theology, but that clearly communicates that he understands them to be something like the spiritual fulfillment of Israel, not to be confused with a replacement, just to be very clear, but the fulfillment of everything Israel always pointed to, and that's why he uses that language. And so he continues his theme of treating them like the, speaking of them as like the nation of Israel. And so look back at uh, verse 19 of chapter 1 of Second Peter for the context, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The context, then, is prophets among Israel, God's people. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. 
Okay, so everyone would understand that Israel was purchased. Israel was bought. So, for example, in Exodus 15, 16, in the song of Moses, talking about the nations who tremble with fear because of what Yahweh has done, terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You have purchased. If you were a Jew or you were using... Uh, Jewish language to describe God's people, they are people who have been purchased corporately out of Egypt. Deuteronomy 32.6, Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is he not your father who bought you, who made you, and established you? Psalm 74.2, Remember your congregation which you have purchased of old. So there is this rich idea of Israel being, we could add to this the language of redemption in the New Testament, redeeming a slave. You could, we could talk about the kinsman redeemer. This idea of purchase within the people of Israel is a theme that's used over and over and over. And as it turns out, Peter has been speaking to his audience with this strong Jewish language. Exodus 6.6 6. I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgments. And so Peter seems to be continuing this thing as God's elect, as Israel, who have been purchased by God. And then he draws this parallel to the corporate external body of people called, between the external corporate body of people called Israel and the corporate external body of people that in his letter he calls sojourners and exiles. Okay, sojourners and exiles. The people of God are now sojourners and exiles. He, and he says that just like the false prophets who were identified back, just like they were false prophets who came in, who were claiming the name of Yahweh in the Old Testament among the, the external group of folks that were called Israel, so similarly there are going to be people who from within the group of folks who call themselves sojourner and exiles who are going to teach falsehood. Okay. In other words, Peter is using the language of this reality within the Old Testament to give his Gentile audience a practical insight about what things are going to look like from their perspective on the ground. What it's going to look like is you're going to be serving along someone, side someone faithfully, and then they are going to deny that Jesus is the Messiah. Does that sound familiar from anyone who's been paying attention through 1 John? And then they're going to go out from them. And what, what John's what his what Peter's language is, excuse me, is practical instruction to people about what this is going to look like. And he gives us evaluation. They're going to be denying that just like there are false prophets in Israel who are purchased. There's going to be people who are purchased using who are the purchased Israel of God in a sense categorically. Uh, there's going to be false prophets who come out of them as well. Okay, And so he's talking about what things will look like on the ground from the perspective of his audience. He's not making a from God's omniscient perspective point of view that these people were purchased by the blood of Jesus and then they lapsed back out or something like that. Uh, finally, let me just say this, that the active language is again a problem even for the unlimited view. Because you again just have to ask the question, okay, for who, who? What people did Jesus buy? What people did Jesus buy? Okay, well, if you give an answer, is you say, well, no one. Okay, Jesus didn't purchase anyone. 
Well, clearly, that's the, the text doesn't even say that. The idea of being purchased means that something was received, and the idea of purchase always involves that now you possess something. Now something is yours. There isn't a precedent in the Old Testament or in the New Testament for purchasing or buying something, and then something no longer doesn't belong to you. Right? The idea of purchase uh, uh, entails a kind of acquisition, but. But if Christ purchased everyone and acquired everyone, again, then everyone would be his. But that's just not the case. So the, the, what, what, the, what the advocate of kind of the potential atonement has to do is say that he potentially bought everyone. But that's just not what the text says. I agree that, people act, that Jesus actually purchased people. And I believe that from the boots on the ground perspective, people... To all, from, from our eyes, from the perspective of our eyes, not to be confused with the perspective of God's omniscience, there will be people who profess Christ and then abandon Christ. They apostatize. Okay? They will be denying the Jesus they profess. Okay? They will be denying the sovereign Lord who bought them. And the judgment will be harsher for them as a result. I don't think that, nothing about that requires some kind of teased out view of atonement uh, being for every single person. Finally, uh, two passages that uh, I don't think have really anything to do with the scope of atonement as we're understanding it, John 3.16 and 2 Peter 3.9, which is really a, uh, a text about God desiring all to be saved and not making atonement. Uh, we've already talked about that when we talked about the two wills of God, and so I'll refer you back to that earlier in the series. All right, well, listen, I know that that was a mouthful. I know that was a lot. I did want to push through this because I wanted to close out this series. So please come ask me questions about any, uh, uh, ling yeah, please come ask me about any lingering questions that you may have, maybe where I didn't communicate something clearly, where I went a little bit too fast, and, um, and, and then when we come back together next time, and not, not, next, not next time, but the time after that, um, Lord willing, we'll be starting a, uh, a brand new series. So I hope this has been helpful. I know at times it's technical. Um, Hopefully that's not always a bad thing, even though I know that that's my biggest struggle is to be a little bit too technical. I would rather be too technical than be sloppy. Okay, I'd rather own the badge of too technical than, ah, oh, it's not not, not uh, sharp enough. So, all right, let's, let's close in prayer, please. Lord God, once more, we want to thank you for redemption, for purchasing people, for purchasing sinners, those who have repented and believed the gospel, and purchasing those who are in darkness, sheep who have not repented and believed. Thank you, Lord, for blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It speaks of salvation and not of death and murder. We pray that the reality of your effective work would stir our hearts and help us press into the security that we have in Christ and the inheritance that we have as children on the basis of, your, uh, of his blood. Be with us during our next hour. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.